Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. I'm Dr. Ishii Desai. As we've learned from previous Raise the Line guests, the global pandemic has brought many changes to the way medical students are taught. In fact, the Journal of the American Medical Association describes COVID as, quote, a catalyst for the transformation of medical education that had been brewing for the past decade. Now, one of the medical education innovators driving change before COVID is our guest today. He's a longtime educator and medical practitioner, including time as Dean of Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine in New York. Dr. David Lenahan has witnessed firsthand the limitations of the traditional medical school model and the friction generated by healthcare delivery evolving faster than medical training. In response, he co-founded Tiber Health nearly five years ago, hoping to create a better, more effective, and inclusive educational model for medical students everywhere, including those at Ponce Health Sciences University in Puerto Rico, where he is currently president. Dr. Lanahan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Rashid. Looking forward to having this discussion. So I'd love to just get started with what first got you motivated to pursue medicine way back when uh, your journey started. You know, so I get asked all the time why I'm on this path working in communities of need, trying to get people from different socioeconomic backgrounds into the healthcare. And I really wish I could give some solid answer that there was a clear path. You know, I was practicing, I had gone to Scotland and did my training there. And then I was at Cambridge in the UK and we moved back and I worked at WashU for a little bit. And then I went up to Toro and we were in Harlem. And one of the things that we were really trying to do was get more underrepresented minorities into the healthcare workforce. And we weren't doing a very good job at that at that time because we were kind of looking at the way we teach, the way we select students in that traditional model. And it became very clear to me that we needed to change this. And I understood that the other 143 medical schools weren't going down this path. And we pivoted. We pivoted hard to a new way of selecting students and delivering the educational model which really became more attuned to, I think, how the youth at the time wanted to study. And it opened up a larger pool of selectable students to come into our medical school. Can you maybe explain that term, selectable students? Just say more about that. Yeah, that's really the heart of this. We all talk about how we need to have more diversity in healthcare. And you hear deans and, and presidents speak about this ad nauseum on news stations and in conferences. But yet, when you look at their numbers, they're all still roughly the same. You need to change the way you select a pool of students to draw from to your medical school. So what we did at first was we started to use a lot of data analytics, and we started to realize that the verbal score, this was the first step, that the verbal score in the MCAT, which is the way it used to be in the old time, had no predictive value whatsoever in how a student would do on the step one scores or that they would pass because that's kind of the, the gatekeeper to become a physician. And so we became the very first school to get rid of the verbal score. And what we found was a lot of the black and Hispanic students didn't do well in the verbal score, but yet did perfectly fine on the science and the physical part. And so when we got that taken out of our admissions requirements, we had a much larger pool. And then the second thing we looked at, which I think was the biggest step is, we stopped looking at the freshman GPA of students applying to medical school. And what happens is if you come from a lower socioeconomic background 
you might not be as prepared as maybe my son would be going to university. My son went to, a, and I'm using my kids as an example, went to a private school. They took calculus, chemistry, biology in high school so that when they went to university, they had already taken these courses and they're taking them again. A lot of the students that went from schools in rural America or urban core America who didn't have an opportunity to take those courses and get prepared mm -hmm. didn't do well. You get three C's freshman year because my son's going to get an A because he's seen it before. This student hasn't got his feet underneath him. You get three C's your freshman year in these courses. Game's up. You never get selected. You don't even make it above a line to kind of quote your show. You never make it above the line to get selected to even be interviewed. And so we just said, you know what? We're not going to look at the freshman GPA. And we started looking at the sophomore, junior, senior. Again, what that did was that opened up that entire spectrum of students that maybe tripped up freshman year. It's not that they're not smart. It's just they needed a little bit extra time to get their feet underneath them. And that made a huge difference and, and really made a big impact in how we were able to select our student class. So what do you say to folks that say, well, you know, going back to your point about the verbal reasoning, you know, that that helps find people that are more well-rounded and you, know, you can't quantitate some of these things. Like, have you heard that, Ribad? And, and if so, what are your thoughts on that? I hear that all the time, and I, I'm not going to swear on your so show, but I'm going to say that's bull. <laughs> all right? I mean, that's absolute nonsense. And, and here's why. If we want doctors to go back, if we want graduates to go back and practice in rural America or urban core America, quite simply, you have to select students from those areas. And I call it kind of the Dorothy effect. You know, you want to go home. You want to go back to where you were from. And I'm going to give a good example of why this is important. Three years ago now, I had a heart issue. I had flown home from Puerto Rico and I didn't feel well. So I went to the emergency room and they did some tests and everything was fine. And the next morning did a catheterization on me. And the doc comes in the room afterwards. He's like, Dave, we have a problem. Now in that room is my wife and me as he goes through what's going on with me and what the process is going to be. If I walk into a patient's room in Puerto Rico or in El Paso, Texas or in Southern California, the patient has the exact same physiology I, I do, same problem. Medically, what you're going to do the same is, is going to be the same. You can do a stent, give drugs, do surgery, but there's going to be 25 people in that room. Yeah. Right? Because grandma, grandpa, uncle, nephew, the whole family is going to be there, and you need to know how to interact with them. I'm explaining why that's important. I'm an Irish Catholic boy from the Midwest. You don't touch me unless you absolutely have to. I'm not a hugger. That's just not what I do. But in a Hispanic culture, you have to know how to hug the patient. You have to know how to touch. A little touch on the arm becomes vital in getting that patient to understand why your treatment plan is important, why they need to follow through. It improves patient satisfaction. It improves outcomes. And because that patient has a higher satisfaction, you have a better result. It also yields better reimbursements for the health facility. So just by selecting students that are coming from different areas and different cultures and doing the things we talk about with diversity is how you improve health outcomes. You get more diversity in the workforce and you actually improve your revenue streams for a lot of hospitals in rural America that are really struggling with not much money coming in for CapEx expenditures. That, that's really helpful. And I appreciate the context there and the example. Do you, do you think a lot of these kinds of things are teachable? Like, so for example, let's say you, you described your own background as, as not being a hugger. You didn't grow up in, a, let's say, a family or culture that did a lot of that, but you learned to do that. So um, do you have students coming in where maybe that's 
not familiar to them or commonplace, but then through the program, through the training, they start becoming more aware and, and able to do those things? I do. I think that you can teach that to a degree, but eventually people are going to want to go home. Again, if I take a student from upper middle class suburbia and I teach them that, you know, if you're in a Muslim community and you got to be careful with how you touch the female patient or how you promote information to the family members, it's not that he's not going to care or that doctor, she or he might not care. Is they're going to care extensively. They do care. Yeah but they're gonna to wanna to go home. They're gonna to wanna to go back to what's familiar to them. And if, if we look at where these healthcare shortages are, they're in the Midwest from St. Louis all the way to Colorado and in that middle swath of America and then urban core, you got Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Chicago, all these Rust Belt cities. If we wanna get students to go back into those areas and provide help, you need to select students from those areas. And we're just not doing that. If you look at the data sets, we're coming out of the AAMC and the new entrants, we're increasing our class sizes, but we're still taking the same students from the same areas. We're not really stepping up to the plate to do what I'm talking about. So that's probably a good segue to, uh, to the fact that you announced the fact that you're expanding your medical education program to St. Louis, Missouri. Do you mind just sharing some of the details about what prompted that and, and what you hope to aim with that program? Yeah, so we, we went down to Puerto Rico. The reason why I was so interested in Puerto Rico and why I left Toro, by the way, I happen to think Toro is probably one of the best medical schools in the United States, uh, osteopathic or MD. I think they got one of the top quality education models. The reason why I left was because I saw a change happening in the Midwest of America. Like I said, from West Virginia to Colorado, there's a demographic change happening there where 95 plus percent of the doctors kind of look like me and a massive change is happening in that population that doesn't. And they speak Spanish, and you're seeing a big change. Puerto Rico is part of the United States. It's an accredited school by the Liaison of Medical Colleges, LCME. And so I thought, you know what? If we could do something in Puerto Rico and really grow that, then we could start moving physicians up into that market. And it's, it's really quite an important thing. And in fact, Puerto Rico in and of itself is probably the most important healthcare state in the United States. It supplies over 50% of all the bilingual students, oh, wow. doctors, entering the healthcare market every year. That's how impactful this place is. And so we acquired the school in 2014. It had some management problems. It wasn't doing so well on some things. Cleaned it up, got it enrolled. We're investing about $200 million down there right now, building a whole new campus. We got our class size increase down there. And we just got permission to expand that, to build an expansion campus by the LCME into St. Louis. And the reason why we chose St. Louis is it's in that middle part of where that demographic shift is happening. So our job is not to take the students that the University of Chicago and Washington University and University of, of Texas are taking. We're going to start taking different students, students they did not take. We're going to get better board scores at the end of the day. And what we're going to do is be able to take students that are going to be willing, not because we're forcing them, but because they want to go back into these areas and practice. So Puerto Rico gave us that opportunity to build this instrument so that we can start solving some of these problems that the health systems across the United States are begging for. And, and that's what we're trying to do. There's a, a phrase that people often associate with the international world of, I guess, geopolitics called the brain drain where people move from one area to another. And, and what you're describing almost sounds like the same exact phenomenon, but locally or at least domestically, 
Do you think on some level that would be a fair way of characterizing what you're saying? No, I don't. And the reason why we are very acutely aware of that in Puerto Rico, we, we didn't want to say, hey, we're going to take people, doctors away from, from the island, which has a physician shortage massive in and of itself. So what we did was before we started to do St. Louis, we made sure we increased our class size. So we grew our class there from 75 students to 150. We know that roughly 50% of the students at any school on the island leaves for North America. So by us doubling our class size, we were able to increase the number of physicians that remain on island. We kind of met our mission to get more healthcare workers on Puerto Rican soil. And then we start building our campus up into St. Louis. So we're not pulling away from Puerto Rico, but we're training local people from the Midwest to go back and practice in the Midwest Rust Belt areas. Got it. That's helpful. We all talk about the cities and having problems there, but when you go and talk to the state hospital associations, these rural hospitals are struggling. You're seeing massive shutting started up in the western part of Georgia in about 1980, and you're seeing a wave of rural hospital shuts happening across the United States. And if they can't get healthcare talent, if they can't get doctors, nurses, all the ancillary positions, same thing's going to happen. And the, the thing that they're really struggling with is they're making costs. So what's happening is these hospitals are, are making their numbers, but they don't make anything extra for capital improvements. Yeah. They can't go buy a new MRI. They can't put a new roof. They can't pave the parking lot. And just slowly they're starting to degrade. By getting physicians that are willing to go there that are from those areas, that's going to help improve their outcomes. That's going to generate extra revenue for them, which means now they have capital available to invest in their infrastructure and start recruiting more talent. And this is the thing that I talk about a lot. It's the nature or nurture of getting physicians trained up so they're willing to go into these areas and practice. And it's one of the things I like to say is we all talk about building medical schools and they look pretty. We build big marble statues and walls and gold leaf. That's great, but that's not the solution. The solution is you build these assets where they're actually needed. Yeah. In St. Louis, we're building it on the north side of St. Louis. It's a large African-American population. They don't have any healthcare facilities up there at all, let alone schools that train healthcare workers. We're going right into the heart of that area because quite simply, that is the right thing to do. I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense and in many ways sounds obvious, right? Like you obviously should build a clinic or facility where it's needed. Why do you think historically that hasn't happened? Or, or what do you think are the reasons that that doesn't happen more often? Again, in healthcare, we don't like to talk about money, right? Everyone knows it's there, but no one wants to actually discuss it. The populations usually don't have insurance. There's not a good capital structure available to invest in these areas. I do think President Obama, and the, I'm not always a big fan of the Affordable Care Act, but in these communities, it did help. President Trump creating the opportunity zone so investors can go in these areas and help reap a better tax return structure. And then, in, especially in Missouri with the Medicaid expansion, I think what you're going to see is a lot more capital dollars going into these areas to bring these resources to the population because now there's money to help cover the costs to get it done. The thing that I like about it is that when I put a, this is my fourth one, when I put a medical school in a community, it generates 600 plus million dollars a year in economic activity. That's great. All the politicians love to talk about that. But more importantly, it has over a whole standard deviation increase in healthcare outcomes. Hmm. Just because I put a school in an area where people see doctors walking around, they, yeah. they go out and get care. And it's that health outcomes that has a staggering impact on the economic impact 
that everyone likes to talk about. And that's what gets me to get up and do these things every day. So that might be a good a good chance to talk a little bit about COVID and, and changes that COVID has put into both that model that you're describing, as well as what you're saying earlier about the closures in rural areas and if you've seen any acceleration of that. So one of the things that we did with our curriculum I didn't chat about is we became, when I was at Toro, the first medical school to kind of flip the curriculum. We got all the lectures offline. So this is 10 years ago before 15 years ago, we took all the lectures and put them offline so the students would watch them and then they come to class and work through clinical problems. Built that out. That's what we do down in, in Ponce and what we're going to do in St. Louis. So when COVID hit, all of our students were already prepared for this situation. They were learning this way that we're actually doing this interview right now on. We had created Zoom rooms and all that stuff pre-COVID. So we had all that set. So the students were able then, when COVID hit, to get out into the community and start helping people. And when you look at Puerto Rico, what you'll see is in our neck of the woods, not the whole island, but our neck of the woods, we have over a 99% vaccination rate for 65 and older, 85% 12 and up. The reason is, is because we are in the community, they trust us, and we're saying, get your vaccine. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing in the United States right now is really a lack of trust. Yeah. And what we find is about 16 to 18% of the population that are underrepresented minorities and lower socioeconomic backgrounds don't trust their physician. And I believe, this is my belief, it's not that they don't trust their physician, it's just there's no physician around to trust. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and so what we need to do to solve this, and we're not gonna solve, I'm not gonna solve COVID personally. This is gonna be gone by the time I get things set up. But if we really want to stop the next one, we have to make sure there's healthcare workers in communities that can go out and speak to them and put some of this false narrative that's out there in the world aside. Because if you don't give them information, if they don't trust you, they're going to read what they yeah. got off of Twitter or whatever social media platform they have. We need to build and engage that relationship better. And in Missouri, especially, there are six counties in Missouri without a healthcare worker. Wow. There are 18 counties with only one physician. I mean, these are staggering numbers. And, and, and if you look at where the low vaccination rates are, they're in these areas. And, and that's in every state, by the way. It's just not Missouri. That's across the United States. So if we want to solve this problem, we have to start getting students from those areas, get them trained, and get them back into those areas and practice. And this is a 20-year approach, by the way. This isn't Dave Linehan trying to solve this tomorrow. It's going to take some time. But I think this is the path we need to be on, and, and we're one of the few schools on this path. Yeah, I mean, you're expressing that point very clearly and putting a fine point on it, the idea of the dearth of providers in rural communities and that being the critical missing piece for there to be any sort of trust building. You know, I, I'm curious, in your background, you ran for state senate in Missouri in 2020. Was that one of the motivators to solve this issue? It really was. I, I mean, let's be realistic. I was a state Senate seat. I wasn't going to do it and retire. But I felt like I had a lot of expertise in education and technology, how to bring expertise into the classroom and get the students to actually use it and believe it. Mm -hmm. I also felt like I had a good understanding of how to improve capital returns on patient care from the CMS, right? Mm -hmm. So from the federal government, how to get more dollars in through that. And I wouldn't say I had every answer, but I've been pretty lucky in, in getting people to follow me and getting those things done. I ran as a Republican, and unfortunately, in my district, it just wasn't a Republican year. You know, I don't think President Trump was very popular in the suburban parts outside of St. Louis. And even though I'm not necessarily 
that type of persuasion as a Republican, I got caught up in it. But regardless if I won or lost, I'm still committed to doing this. I thought maybe I could do a little bit more in the Senate, but I'm still the guy that puts his boots on and goes into those communities. I know there's a lot of people out there that write checks and, and, and donate to, to good causes, which you still need. That's wonderful. And I do that too. But I'm the guy that puts the boots on and goes in and builds things in these communities and goes out there and helps and talks to people because that's what I need to do. Again, it's not about money to me. I'd make more money seeing patients, but it's about doing the right thing. And, and that's what's driving me. And that's why I wanted to run for politics. That's that's incredibly helpful. And, and you know, one of the things that's that's obvious and just speaking to you for 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 even just a few minutes is how passionate you are about these issues and how eloquent you are on speaking on, on some of the solutions. One thing that I've always kind of found odd is when um, important points are not being discussed by the mainstream. Like, I, I don't think that the rural urban divide is as commonly discussed and the lack of resources in rural areas is as mentioned as a glaring need. Uh, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think that something as obvious as not having more than one health official in a county is not mentioned as a glaring deficit? I think it's population density. I mean, the media has to make money too. And when you're talking to an audience and there's 100,000 people that live in a small block or there's 100,000 people that live within 100 square miles, mm-hmm. you know, it's easier to, to promote that. But I don't want to diminish the importance of getting healthcare workers into urban America too. That's mm-hmm. just as important to me. And it's important that we select students from urban America because a lot of these students that are graduating are still going back out into parts of the U.S. that are more affluent than not. Mm-hmm. And when we build, like, I'm going right into the heart of urban St. Louis, the, the black community, because I want to select students from there so the kids in the area will see doctors walking around. They'll see people that kind of look like them. We'll also concentrate on rural America. Yeah. Both those things are vital important. And, and what I say is, I'm not competing with any of the other medical students. I'm going to take students they're not going to look at. They're not, they're not taking that student with a 3-3 GPA. I am, because I can use our analytic models to help make sure that they're going to pass the boards and get there. But I also believe that it's that student that is going to go back and, and again, solve the problem. But we do need to talk about rural America in, in the same breath as urban America. And, and I agree that we don't do a good job on that with the media. So it's very obvious also that you care deeply about about students, and you've talked about the student that often gets ignored, dismissed, overlooked. We have in our audience a number of students. We have early career health professionals. What is your advice to them about meeting the challenges of this moment in healthcare, especially given all that's kind of going on with COVID and, and vaccines and whatnot? Yeah, so I have two boys. Two, my two children are in medical school, so I have recently had this debate with them in the household. And you would think because I work in the industry and have been a dean of a medical school and president of a university that I would have some influence. No, no, no. What I would tell you this is, is listen to your admission advisor from the university to a degree. If they tell you freshman year that the game is up because you got a C in calculus, find a different advisor. I'm not saying it's guaranteed you're going to get in, but don't get discouraged so early. Right now, we are discouraging so many students in their freshman year that it's tough. I've even scolded a few admissions people. I go, that is not what we're looking at. And you need to stop doing that because you're wrecking the dreams of people that could very easily become great physicians. 
So I, I would say if you, you can't just follow your passion. I know everyone says follow your passion. I, that's somewhat nonsense. You have to follow your studies. If you really want to do this, study, work hard, follow the processes. You don't get great grades in college because of whatever reason, maybe a family member got sick or you were unprepared freshman year. Do a master's program. Lots of schools have master's programs. Now we have one at Tiber that we use and there are ways if you're willing to, to do the work and it's hard work, guys. I'm not gonna tell you this is an easy path, but I will tell you it's one of the most rewarding paths you'll ever go down. And it's much better than being an investment banker. How's that? <laughs> that that's probably as, uh, as good an ending as we could hope for. So, <laughs> uh, a lot of people are going to be mad at me for saying that, but it's true. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for spending some time with us and giving us that, uh, that incredible uh, cup of wisdom. That was helpful. Thanks, Leverage. Appreciate it. Great. Well, I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together and pursue medicine over investment banking. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>